Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, it's Artemis, and in today's episode, I get to speak to the performer and author Elizabeth Wilson, and she's going to tell me about a remarkable pianist, Maria Yudina, who rose to fame in Stalin's Russia. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time today. It's such a delight to be speaking to you in person in the Yale University Press offices in Bedford Square. How are you? Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm I wish I didn't have a cold, but no, I'm very well and uh, I love being in London and very pleased to be in Yale, who so kindly commissioned this book for me. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about it, Playing With Fire. It's a really extraordinary book about a very extraordinary person. And how did you first come across Maria Yudina? Well, I studied in Moscow when I was a teenager. I went there when I was 17, so we're talking way back in the 60s. And um, she was actually still alive. She died in 1970, but I never met her and I never heard her. Um, she didn't play very many concerts at that stage because she was in disgrace half the time and things were difficult for her. But she did give some lectures at the conservatoire. I could have gone to the lectures and I didn't. I'm furious with myself, but I was a young, stupid cello student and I, I didn't know that much about it. Nevertheless, I had heard about her I knew her name and I had bought her recordings and she was very much a legendary figure because you know, she was meant to do things which were considered outrageous like cross herself before the concert began in public. She spoke her mind and if she didn't want to play an encore because her hands were tired, she'd say, okay, I think we'll do some poetry now. Let me read you some Pasternak or Zabolotsky or whatever. And the authorities didn't like that very much because they never knew whether she was going to actually recite a poem that had never been published and, you know, was, as it were, in that sense, taboo. So she was a very extraordinary figure for the times. Yeah, she was not the usual person. She didn't comply with any kind of conventional rules. And, of course, she was religious, which was a terrible sin in those days. And you first started researching her life quite a few years ago, is that right? And then you've come back to it later. I mean, how do you go about capturing a life as extraordinary as hers or a personality as, as extraordinary as hers? Well, as I say, when I was in Moscow, I had heard about her and I heard many funny legends about her, which were not true, but things like, you know, she slept in her coffin and she wore a rosary. and so They were all exaggerations. They were, could have been in character for her to do such things, but she didn't. And it worked out that actually I didn't have the idea. Somebody else had it, a, a man called David King, who had a fabulous collection of Russian graphic art, mostly from the revolution, 1905, 1917. And then he collected also political photographs. He had the biggest collection of photographs of Trotsky in the world. And he had all these incredible photographs of the labor camps and of the commissars and of course, they would brush them out when they were um, liquidated. So he had, you know, the first original picture and then the one when there were one missing and then two missing and then maybe only two people left of a group of eight or something. Extraordinary. That collection's all gone to the Tate Modern. And I got to know David. I was living in North Islington and so was he and we got to know each other. And he came up to me and said, we have to do a book about you, Dina. 
Um, he did these rather wonderful graphic books, with lots of photographs, and usually the text was sort of down the sides because they looked great. And in a way, his idea was you learnt about people through photographs. And he did books on all kinds of people. For instance, he did one on Cassius Clay, um, so not just Russian repressive arts and the great purges and Isaac Deutscher on Trotsky. No, much, much wider than that. But what happened was that I said, oh, well, we could give it a try. And of course, he needed me in the sense um, he didn't know whether I could write or not, neither did I. For that matter, I'd never written a book in my life. But um, we went off to the Soviet Union, as it was then. We were talking about the middle 80s. And I had wonderful contacts there because I'd studied there for and lived there for seven years nearly. So, so um, I got people to introduce me to the people who were close to Yudina. That was her student and disciple, Marina Drozdova, and then her biographer called Anatoly Kuznetsov. And I met her cousin um, or her nephew. And so we got to know family members and we got to know people who were really close to her. And from David's point of view, he wanted to take as many pictures as he could. And so they all produced their photograph albums and collections. And so happened her nephew was a photographer too. So that was what he was doing while I was talking to them and learning a lot about them. And um, sort of we did interviews and then we went up to Leningrad where she had lived the large part of her life until um, 1932 or so. She was expelled from the Leningrad Conservatoire at a certain point. And so she had to go and seek her fortune elsewhere. And she ended up living in Moscow from 1935. And she died in 1970. So, you know, she had actually, most of her life was in Moscow. But nevertheless, we went to Leningrad and we went to see the buildings where she had lived and the halls and I actually went into some archives. And so I started collecting material. And, you know, I even saw some letters. And then one has to say that this man who became her, if you like, biographer, Kuznetsov, collected all the material he could lay hold of. He did an extraordinary kind of sweep, not only of all the archives, but all the people who she had known and collected letters. And he later made anthologies of the letters. I think there are eight volumes up to date. The last two he didn't do because he died, unfortunately, but but there's extraordinary correspondence available. And that, that made research much easier. But not at the time, of course, because in the Soviet days, we're still in the 1980s, still Soviet Union, there wasn't that much published and it was censored. So that, you know, certain things they just couldn't say. Mm. And what actually meant that I started and I then stopped, it was rather, naughty of me in one sense, and I let David King down. I always felt bad about that, but but on the other hand, I just suddenly realized she was such an extraordinary figure, and she was involved in so many things. And in she was a student of philosophy, philology, classics. She went to university as well as studying and playing the piano. She was a member of a philosophical circle called the Bakhtin Circle. Mikhail Bakhtin was one of most important philosophical figures in Russia, literary critic and, and many other things he was. But, um, you know, she was one of his best friends. She is a great friend of Pavel Florensky, wonderful priest who uh, was, of course, killed in the Stalinist uh, camps. But he was much more than that. He was called, called the Leonardo da Vinci of Russia because he was a scientist 
and he was an art expert and he knew lots about music. He, he was a kind of all-round man, but he chose to go into the priesthood rather than becoming a monk. And, um, and she knew him well, and she knew extraordinary people. She knew Boris Pasternak, the poet, very well, great friend of his. So, so she sought out sort of the best people in the country, the most incredible towering figures in their own fields. Mm. And um, she was a musician, but you know, she could talk to them on their own level, and that, that was extraordinary. So I thought, I'm not ready to write this book because I don't know enough about these things. And also, she was very religious, and the whole story of how she came to religion was extraordinary because she was actually born into a Jewish family, an agnostic Jewish family, but she was converted to Christianity, and it was quite common in those days, funnily enough, I mean, we're talking about 1919 when she embraced Orthodox Christianity. It's amazing how I got the impression when I was reading the book that, like you say, her life kind of touches on so many aspects of this moment in Russian history, um, not just the kind of intellectual scene and the art artistic and creative scene, but what was going on in politics and religion and, and um, even kind of in the fabric of the city, the place she was living, it, felt, it feels like hers is a life that tells you something about that moment in Russian history. But I wanted to ask you a bit about, um, you mentioned that you play the cello, you're a cellist, I guess we can say. Mm. And I was really interested to know if, how that had influenced your writing of the book, because other people perhaps are historians or biographers and aren't musicians and might not have truly understood Maria's art and her practice in the way that you might have a much better understanding of as a musician yourself. Did, did you find yourself using your experience, your knowledge from your uh, cello playing and your performan performing in your writing of the book? Inevitably, I did. I did use that. Um, and, you know, I'm very fond of piano. I was married to a wonderful pianist, my first marriage, uh, Radu Lupu. I would go back to what you said earlier. You know, her life touched on so many aspects of what the country went through. And that was really key for me. That's why I wanted to do the book, because it was a kind of way through this one figure of recounting something about what life was like in the time. Well, I think you've given us a wonderful sense of who Maria was and, um, and the period that we're going to be speaking about today. So I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on Travels Through Time, which is, if you could travel through time, what year would you visit? Mm, that's a difficult one. <laughs> well, let's say 1921, because it was an important year for our heroine, Maria Yudina. So before we go to the first scene in 1921, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Maria's life had been like up until that point. How old is she and um, what has she been up to? Well, Maria was born in September 1899, just the end of that year, just on the cusp of the century. She was born in a small town, which is in the Pale of Settlement. It's called Neville. It's not far from Vitebsk, which was quite a centre of art, and people associated with Marc Chagall and Malevich and people. Women, in fact, couldn't go to university then, you know, so that they had special courses where they were able to go and get some kind of education. But... And Maria herself actually enlisted in something called the Leskaft courses, which were originally found, the, the Leskaft courses were originally founded as courses of gymnastics and sort of phys physical culture. But then they extended to becoming things 
um, giving education to kindergarten teachers, preschool, the idea of playgroups sort of came through there. And for some reason, Maria wanted to do that, and she did. And during the February Revolution, the Lesgaft building was taken over and became sort of part of the um, of the revolution. And she went went there and was doing things with all the people and handing out arms. She even was given a gun herself, and it went off by mistake. And she, I, I think, her bullet went through several. I love this description in the book. It was so it, it was so thrilling to think about. How old she must have been? Seventeen. Yeah, seventeen. To be seventeen in the middle of the February Revolution, and that's the the small the one the one of the two in the year. That's the one that more people are actually involved with, rather as opposed to the October Revolution, which is more led by the Bolsheviks, isn't it? This is the one where it kind of. It's everybody coming together and saying, "Hey, maybe we should, <laughs> maybe we should have a new way of running the world." And she's there in the heart of it. It's quite thrilling to think about. At the same time, she was playing away, and she managed to strain her arms. And I don't know. I think it was the beginning of a kind of condition that she had all her life, which was a sort of rheumatic fever, which every now and then she couldn't play the piano, and she had to give up. So, summer 1917, things were getting bad. Food was getting scarce. I mean, you also had the First World War still was going on. Mm, of course. And the Russians were trying to get themselves out of it, but not while the Tsar was there, they couldn't do that. And she decided to go home for the summer, and she stayed at home. She didn't go back to St. Petersburg in the, for the autumn term in 1917 because things were getting too chaotic. And also she had strained her arms and she wanted to spend some time with her family. And that was very interesting because the first thing she did was set up a summer play school for the young children in the town. So she, here she is teaching these children games and a few lessons. And I think they did some reading and writing and things like that. But putting her education that she had at the Lesgaft into practice. Then later that year, she met Mikhail Bakhtin. And before that, an extraordinary man called Lev Kumpiansky, who was again a literary critic. He had an enormous influence on her, both as a kind of intellectual, for her intellectual development, but also for her spiritual development. And he likewise was a Jew, but he had already converted to Christianity. And she met several people of that persuasion. And so she became terribly interested in Christianity. And she was keeping a diary at the time. So we know she was reading the Church Fathers and she was reading St. Augustine and she was reading Solovyov and mm -hmm. Florensky. Uh, she was getting herself more and more interested in things spiritual. She was also very interested in the classics and Greek uh, philosophers and things like that. So she had this very wide curiosity, mm -hmm. intellectual curiosity. Extremely um, erudite, wasn't she? She was extremely erudite. She obviously had enormous facility and a very good brain. When Mikhail Bakhtin also came to Neville, now that was because he was friendly with Pumpiansky, and Pumpiansky said, don't stay in St. Petersburg, there's nothing to eat. You know, the universities are hardly functioning. Come to Neville because I can get you work, and there's lots of food and nice people. And sure enough, they managed to found a philosophical circle it's known as the Bakhtin Circle, in which they discussed everything under the sun. But their main, I suppose, their, their, their main interest was Neo-Kantian philosophy. And it so happened that a, a person from Neville was a philosopher, had gone to Marburg to study and to Berlin and knew all the Neo-Kantian philosophers there. So suddenly we have Maria Udina not only 
running a play school, opening a music school and doing all these things, but getting very interested in philosophy and becoming part of Bakhtin's inner circle. Then at a certain point, she has to go back to St. Petersburg in 1919. She goes back. And in the meantime, the Bakhtin circle starts moving to Vitebsk, which is, uh, as I said, the nearby town. So there we are. Maria goes back to St. Petersburg. Um, she decides she'll go to study some things at university. She enrolls in university classes, meets some of the most brilliant minds of the day, and goes to seminars by people like Levkar Savin and uh, wonderful teachers, Graves. Well, there was a wonderful history faculty in St. Petersburg, or I shouldn't call it that, I should call it Petrograd at this stage, Petrograd. Mm. And it seems that she was ha she was having an extraordinary education in every sort of sense of the word, but not only a formal education at university and through her studies at the conservatoire, but with the people that she spent time with and the kind of circle she was moving in, she was being educated in on every possible subject, as you said, they, they would speak about every subject under the sun. That's a kind of fascinating aspect of, of Yes, I think she had an incredible intellectual curiosity and intellectual energy. Um, you know, I, I don't quite know how she managed to go to all these things and do... And at the same time, she became converted to... Uh, officially converted and baptised in May 1919. Her father was not at all pleased, and he reputedly came to St. Petersburg and saw that she had a little corner where she had her rosaries and icons, and he took an inkwell and threw it at the religious objects. And, and she was very meek and didn't say anything, but um, had to rub out all the ink stains on the wall. But um, the, there it was. It was not, he didn't like any kind of religious fanaticism, and he didn't care whether you were Jewish or, or Christian or Muslim, but he didn't want any of that. We should head to our first scene in 1921, the sort of culmination of all of these events and um, her life so far. She's been in education, and where are we? Where are we in our first scene? If we were in a, a specific building and on a specific date in 1921, where would we be? Yes, well, 1921 is very important because Maria decided that she ought to graduate as a pianist. After all, that was her first prime profession. And so in 1920, she re-enrolled at the Conservatoire in the class of a wonderful professor called Professor Nikolaev. Um, and Nikolaev was an extraordinary musician. He was also a composer. And he was very, I would say, very free in the way he, he treated his students. Each one he treated as an individual. And he recognised that um, Eugenia was already a kind of complete artist. And so Leonid Nikolaev, as he was called, um, polished her performances and tried to get her to maybe transit them better. But, but they had kind of discussion almost as equals. And in his class was a young Dmitry Shostakovich, who was a composer. We're talking about 1920, so he was 14 when he met Yudina. And he, he would recall, I'm just going to read this little bit because I thought it was so wonderful. There was another wonderful pianist called Sofronitsky, who was one of the great Russian pianists at that time. He was also in the class. And Shostakovich would say that... Um, that Nikolaev would give them as examples. He said, listen to how Marussia, that's Yudina, Maria, Marussia plays this piece. And listen to how Bova, that was Safrenitsky, listen to how he plays that. And listen to how Yudina plays four-part fugues. Each voice has its own timbre. 
and I would listen, and indeed each voice has its own timbre, though it seemed theoretically impossible. You would by Bach quite wonderfully. So what happens is that towards the middle of the year, she was also studying conducting, and at this stage, no longer with Cherepnin, because he had immigrated to Tbilisi, I think, where there was food and he could get, there were no communists there yet. And she was studying with uh, Emil Cooper. And so she did her, and she was studying composition with Steinberg. So she had to do all these exams and different things. And in May, she did her official exam and she got top marks. And Glasunov. Uh, <laughs> Slightly unsurprising. Yeah, Glasunov yeah, left a very, very um, nice assessment of her and said her performance was brilliant, large scale, and virtuosa. She displays much temperament in her transmission of music and her interpretation of the lyrical moments showed great depth and variety of color. Massive, opulent sound, but our forties are sometimes exaggerated. And that, of course, was true throughout her life. She sometimes played so heroically that people had to put their hands over their ears almost. It was you know, almost too much. And she played, um, concerto by one of her classmates as another part of her exam. And then they had the actual graduation ceremony and that was a great event. And that happened on 3rd of July, 1921. And both she and Sofrenitsky played. And for the public, it was most extraordinary event. And they both played the Liszt Sonata, one after the other. So it must have been pretty extraordinary. And was there a Yudi sense of competition between the two of them that they were both playing the same piece or were their styles so different that it didn't matter that it was I the think same? their styles were very different and they liked each other, they respected each other, they even played some concerts together in the, later on in life. Um, I don't think they thought of themselves as in competition, but perhaps the public did, yes, yes. I think they probably did. And Eugenia was very much into counterpoint and a few, so her whole programme was actually showed her propensity for polyphony. So she was playing Buxtehude, a piece that Nikolaev had arranged, Prelude and Fugue, and Bach Buzoni, and mm. then she played Glasunov's enormous Prelude and Fugue in D minor, and then she played the final work, Liszt Sonata, which of course has a famous fugato in it. So, and for and non-musically literate listeners, could you just explain what polyphony, poly polyphony means? Polyphony is, yeah. yes. Polyphony is, um, many voices, literally, doesn't it mean? So when we're talking about a fugue, it's when you have one voice starts and then, then it's answered by a second voice okay. and the other voice continues playing a counter, what we call a counter subject. And you Almost can- like they're in dialogue with each other. Yes, well, they are in dialogue, but that's two voices, but you could then have three voices and four voices, up to five voices usually. Six is very rare, it can happen, but it becomes very, very technically difficult for the composer to put them all in. It's kind of considered, like the most ascetic thing in musical composition to be able to write good fugues. And it's one of the things we call a counterpoint to that people have to study specially. Mm. And Yudina was always very interested in this. Whereas Sofrenitsky was very interested in playing the romantic literature, particularly Chopin and of course Scriabin, because he married Scriabin's daughter. So he had a kind of direct connection in some way, although he, he never met the composer, he died in 1915. But there we are. And Eugenia saw the Liszt Sonata as a kind of Faustian dilemma and you know, really 
devil's music and temptation and things like that. And so... Why did you see it as devil's temptation? Well, I think if you know the work and listen to it, you could easily see why. Mm. Um, because there's something quite diabolical about some of the things that happen. And the way it's a very virtuoso work, I can see it. But she had her own idea, and apparently she created a rather terrifying and passionate discourse of a person suffering pain who insistently stands up for the truth in the face of powerful temptation. That was written by her godmother. And her mother had actually been frightened of her interpretation and disliked it. She And she probably also had great difficulty accepting her daughter's struggles and adolescent turmoil and religious passions. And her mother, unfortunately, died in 1918. So um, I think that would also have made an effect on Udina because she felt that you know, she had to understand her wonderful, very kind mother. I just wanted to dwell a little bit on this moment of the graduation, which is the sort of scene that we're, we're in, if we imagine ourselves as audience members. Um, how unusual was it to see how, uh, given the sort of context of the time and um, the revolution and everything, how unusual was it um, for people to be able to go and watch music like this? Oh, I don't think it was unusual. I think okay. concert light, it's restarted. There was a difficult period in the... 1918, 19, 20, when the halls were a bit open. By, by now, things were coming back again. Um, the conservator managed to keep going, though, and therefore it would have had a graduation every year. But I don't know how many people would have gone. Mm. And the fact that the conservator managed to keep its doors open was very much, well, I think it was very much due to Glazunov, who was a director who was absolutely dedicated to the conservatoire and to the education of young people and talented young people. We have Shostakovich, of course, Prokofiev in the past had studied there. Um, and, you know, there were these wonderful performers. And in fact, both Yudina and Sofreditsky were so fantastic that they were awarded the prize. There was a prize called the Rubinstein Prize, named after Anton Rubinstein, who was a founder of the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1862. What happened was the Rubinstein Prize meant a piano. They were awarded a piano. But because it was 1921 and they had been in the Civil War and it was just coming to an end, and it was called the period of war communism, no piano. They didn't get a piano. They didn't get a penny, got nothing. They just got the glory. Mm. And Udina got something more because she was elected to the staff of the Conservatory. So here she is, not quite 21, and already teaching at Hello, it's Peter here. If this week's episode has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not try a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, covering subjects from archaeology and history through to music, art and wildlife. Ace have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney marshes to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK as well as further afield. Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, Ace are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more, or to request a copy of Ace's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. 
And I think that leads us on really nicely to our next scene that we're going to go to just a couple of months later in 1921. Um, would you like to tell listeners where we're where we are physically, what building perhaps we're in? Yes, and we're here again. We're not in the conservatory building. We're in the building of it's called the Nobleman's Assembly, but it had been taken over by the newly founded Petrograd Philharmonic. And I mentioned earlier Emil Cooper, who was a conductor, famous conductor at the Marinsky Theatre. And he was asked by Luna Charsky, who was a, a commissar for enlightenment and education. And he asked him to, to form the orchestra. So the, there had been an orchestra, but it, it didn't have a proper formation. So now it was properly form, formed as a philharmonic orchestra. And the building itself, where the nobleman's assembly is, was called the Petrograd Philharmonia, and then shortly after, 1924, the Leningrad Philharmonia. Now, Emil Cooper was asked to open it on, I think it was, um, what was it, 3rd of August? No, 10th, 3rd of August was, I think, when he was going to open it, but the, they started rehearsals. But on the 10th of August, the first concert happened, mm -hmm. and he invited Yudina as his soloist, so she had the honor to open the Petrograd Philharmonic and she was playing Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. Just for the, the musically illiterate amongst us, um, could you give us a sense of what, if we were in the audience, what would we be looking at? Is it a full orchestra? How, who's playing? Yeah. What, what, what can we see? If, if, what could we see if we were there? So I'm talking about um, Emil Cooper becoming the head of the Leningrad Philharmonic Orchestra. So it's a symphony orchestra, full-scale okay. symphony orchestra, yes. It's one that is still known today as not the Leningrad, St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra. It's one of the most famous orchestras in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a spectacular building. It's got, I, I can't remember, eight enormous chandeliers, wow. beautiful white columns, and a really wonderful hall, and it's got a beautiful acoustic and... St. Petersburg people are very proud of it, right, rightly so. And it's bang in the middle of town, uh, opposite. It's near the Russian Museum, just off Nevsky Prospect in the centre of town. So Yudina is here. She goes to her rehearsal and Cooper announces a dreadful piece of news. The poet Alexander Bloch has died. And for Yudina, that was absolutely... Awful. 7th of August it was died. So they were starting rehearsals on the 7th. And the concert was on the 10th. And the 10th of August was when his funeral was. And I should say that this funeral was one of the most dramatic things that happened. Because for Russians, Bloch was, he was an extraordinary figure. and But he meant everything. He was the most famous symbolist poet, if you like. And when the revolution happened, he stayed in Russia. He kind of half accepted it. And he wrote this incredible poem called the... 12. So you imagine 12 as being 12 disciples, perhaps, and they're following a crowd. And of course, they're following a red flag, and they're following, if you like, the Bolshevik crowd, but, but there's also the Christ-like figure. And so it's a mixture of Christian illusions and, and communist illusions, and I think that was a very strong, powerful poem. And um, it was a terrible blow for the Russian intelligentsia. Um, I wanted to read you something there. Yes, this is what Yudina said. Um, I performed Beethoven's Fifth at the concert, but it would have been better not to play at all. It was the day Alexander Bloch died. So she was there in tears, and they all, when they heard about it, the whole orchestra stood up and everybody was crying. 
meant that. So already for the musicians, it was a big thing. And when Block died, he was actually not very old. He was only 42, I think. And he just, his health disappeared. He just didn't have any help. And he also couldn't bear what was happening in the revolution, all the violence and things. And he said to another writer, Kornei Chukovsky, he said, all sounds have stopped. Can't you hear that there are no longer any sounds? But he meant it creatively. He was not hearing poetry. He was not hearing the sound of poetry in his ears. Uh, he was actually 40 and he died, he was told he died of exhaustion. Mm. But all educated people rushed to his home and were all at the funeral carrying his uh, coffin. And one of the writers that I quote, I think is well worth quoting, Nina Berberova, it's a wonderful writer. She actually emigrated quite early on, but she was there and she went to Bloch's house and she saw the, his dead body and then she went to the funeral and she wrote this. I was seized by a feeling which I never again experienced, that I was suddenly orphaned. And then she was saying about the funeral that, you know, there were all these other writers, Andrei Bieli, Zamyatin, they were carrying the coffin and crowds and crowds of people in the streets. And she commented, probably there was not a man in the crowd who did not think, if only for a moment, that not only had Bloch died, but this city was dying with him. Its special power over people was coming to an end. A historical period was closing. A cycle of Russian destinies was being completed. And I think that's a wonderful summing up of what people were feeling. And it must have been even worse because only a few weeks later, a wonderful poet, um, Nikolai Gumilyov, well, he was arrested and shot by the Cheka, the secret police. Um, he was arrested on 3rd of August. And on 26th of August, he and various other people who were charged with participating in a monarchist conspiracy called the Taginsev plot, they were all shot. And Maxim Gorky, who had been terribly upset by this, had gone to Lenin and had got a pardon. And he arrived just too late. Mm. The execution had taken place. I also wrote down that Nina Berberova quote about the histor a historical period was closing and a cycle of Russian um, destinies yes. was being completed. It's, it's an amazing little piece of prose, but like you say, it really sums up the kind of general mood at the time amongst the intelligentsia. Did pessimism define their, their mood at that time? Well, I think for many of them it did, because many of them saw that didn't think there was any future for creative art. Um, and you can tell, we look at Anna Akhmatova, who was married to Nikolai Gubanyov. She was at that stage divorced from him, but her she had a son by him. And, you know, for her, the 1920s was a time when she could write very little and hardly publish. Um, and I think many people felt at the time, because it was a time anti-symbolism, anti all these kind of slightly arty groups. And people were meant to write about the what was happening in the communist world. You were meant to be like Mayakovsky, mm. um, very topical, and you were meant to be extolling the Communist Party and things like that, and the workers, this kind of thing. They, many people didn't really agree with that. It's not that they had anything against the workers, but they didn't really see why they should be extolling them. Mm. Um, and certainly somebody like Akhmatova, uh, famous Petrograd, Leningrad poet, 
poet, poetessa, poetess. A wonderful figure, also a friend of Eugenia's. Yes, of course she would have felt probably very similar. At the same time, many of these Russians who, who they did feel their destiny belonged to Russia, they didn't want to emigrate. There were those who emigrated, like Beberova and her husband, Vodosevich, another wonderful poet. They did emigrate to France, but they felt, if you go to another country, you've lost your language, you've lost your culture. And I think, I think that's something that was very, very difficult uh, for them to accept. And Akhmatova, would say in her poem, exile is forever pitiful, like a prisoner, like someone ill. Dark is your road, wanderer, like wormwood smells the bread of strangers. Mm. And Yudina would have agreed. She did not want to emigrate. Mm. She wanted her destiny was in Russia and in some way to be there with the Russians. And I think that was a wonderful generation of people. And some people said, oh, they squandered their talents by remaining. But you could see, okay, a musician, a composer could live abroad, maybe, and write, as Prokofiev was doing at that time. But for a writer to go and live in Paris, and there were those like Ivan Bunin and, and Khodosevich and so on, there were many who had to go, and later Zamyatin went abroad. But it was difficult for them to write in their native Russian language mm. and be deprived of their motherland. Mm. I think the only one who did that really successfully was Nabokov, um, but that's slightly later, yeah. yeah. It is a terrible thought, this idea of being trapped um, and not wanting to leave your, your native country and your home country, but also existing under a government that or under kind of state repression and not being able to fully express yourself and this sort of sense of um, pessimism. But then I was also really struck by in the book, you talk about how um, many people at the time, including Maria, were were led by their passions, whether it's art or whether, in Maria's case, her music and her religion. So there's yes. this kind of contrasting sense of um, the wider world being dark and pessimistic, but then the internal spirit and um, drive and ambition of Maria as a person. I was, I was really struck by that contrast. Yes, I think it was very, very relevant to them. And I think, you see, I think a lot of people felt that the Tsarist regime had been very unfair and very cruel and there was serfdom and slavery and terrible conditions for people and no real opportunities for somebody who was born in a lower strata of society to move up. Um, it was very stratified, the Tsarist society, and they had all these... Um, you know, they had all these levels and you were a petty councillor, you're this or you're that, and it all mattered. And they wanted a kind of more democratic world and they wanted people to be able to have opportunities and they wanted very much the idea was that education was to be now for the working class and not for the intellectuals. And that was a big problem in the universities just at that particular period. And in fact, when the Civil War finished, Lenin sort of thought, okay, now we'll come to grips with these intellectuals, see what they've been doing. And of course, he expelled lots of them because he thought they were potential enemies of the Soviet Union. Mm. And not that they had done anything, but they were potentially hostile. And he even organized two boats. They were called the philosophy steamer, and he's stuck on them. <laughs> All these incredible people, historians and philosophers, and had them expelled to Germany on, by boat. There we are. So that attitude um, was further extended, of course, by Stalin later. And the, the, the intelligentsia was always suspect. 
in the mines. They always felt they weren't going to be loyal or something, which was not necessarily true. They also felt that social justice was needed. Why not? And I think these philosophical circles that Maria belonged to felt that social justice, yes, communism was had lots of good sides, but you wanted to give it some spiritual meaning as well. So Alexander Mayer of the the one who ran Voskresenia, this group I was talking about earlier, he very much felt that that was the case. And that's why his group was very successful, I think, and, and had so many adherents. And I, to be quite fair, I think there were, you know, of course you see the new Soviet man, or sort of it was called, and the, the Neb man and things like that. There were people who wanted to get rich quickly and people who wanted to take advantage of this. So there were all kinds of people. And there was a small kind of, you know, new Russian man who could go to the cinema or something and was written about by people like Zoshinko. A, a new kind of, let's say like this, that in the Tsarist times you had the kind of small petty officials that are described in Gogol's works, and like the overcoat or, or the nose. Um, but in the Soviet time you had this sort of up-and-coming man who was a worker, a pr proletarian, and he had very simple tastes probably and quite like going to the cinema and has talked to rather kind of, you know, jargon, didn't speak well, and had no literary interests at all and couldn't be bothered to go to a concert. And yet there were those workers who did want to learn and who did, you know, go and try and better themselves and take opportunities, there are plenty of them, to go and to study. So it was just a very mixed society and a melting pot, yeah. And so Maria decides to stay, obviously. She's given the opportunity to emigrate, but she decides not to. And I think that might lead us on kind of to our final scene that we're going to talk about in 1921. And I want to sort of look towards the rest of the year and a bit into Maria's future. What kind of Russia is she deciding to stay in? Um, and you mentioned um, that you wanted to talk a bit about the end of the civil war, the introduction of the new economic policy, all of these massive kind of political and economic changes that are changing around her. So what is life like for Maria in, and she's staying, and this is in Petrograd still. She's staying in Petrograd. She's got a, a very good job at mm -hmm. the, teaching at the conservatoire. She's playing concerts. Um, she's, you know, she's in the thick of musical life. She's meeting wonderful people. And we have to know that in the middle of the 1920s, suddenly they opened up musical life to visitors and they had fantastic artists coming to St. Petersburg. Oh, excuse me. They had fantastic artists coming Petrograd and to Leningrad and you know she would run to all the rehearsals and she'd hear Otto Klemperer conduct and uh, Bruno Walter and you know Alban Berg came there was a performance of Wozzeck uh, his opera and there were many many wonderful things happening and so Petrograd Leningrad probably because of 1924 became almost the centre of the arts, more so than Moscow, but um, although these many of these artists also went to Moscow, but many of these foreign artists developed a very good relationship with the orchestra, Petrograd Philharmonic, which we've talked about. And, you know, Klemperer came many times, Otto Klemperer, and Eugenia um, became friendly with him. And then we had people like um, Artur Schnabel, the pianist, you know, who came and was an enormous influence on Eugenia, because he was one of the first people to ever play Schubert piano sonatas, and this inspired her to learn the big B-flat piano sonata. 
and she would get all her students to go to his concerts, and then she'd invite him to the conservatoire to say something to her students and give a master class, things like that. So the, you know, there was that going on. So the 1920s was a great mixture. On the one hand, you had these, these workers' proletarian associations like the proletarian musicians and the proletarian writers who were pretty rabid and they talked this rather horrible ideological language and they didn't want anything to be too avant-garde and too recherche. They felt that the Russian composers should definitely be writing for the people. And sometimes it was extremely primitive. Sometimes it meant like taking an opera like Puccini's Tosca and just giving it another name and calling it, um, giving it another subject and say it was about the Paris Commune or something. And, um, and they tried to write their own operas, which had Soviet themes. And then there were people like Shostakovich who were also writing what he wanted to write and writing symphonies and writing the opera The Nose on Gogo and who was interested in the avant-garde. You have the cinema, which is, you know, in the heyday, you have all these wonderful mm. new artists. You have the people like Kozintsev and Trauberg, you have Eisenstein, you have massive, talented people starting work in the cinema. So it's the case that a, a, <coughs> a simplistic view of this period would say that it's all quite bleak <laughs> and Stalin's about to turn up on the scene and make things even worse. But actually there is this really rich cultural and artistic life that Maria mm. was a part of and participates in throughout the 1920s that there is more room for creativity at that time than perhaps we might think. Yes, it's a always paradox that the, on the one hand, there is this very free cultural life, if you like, and, and masses of things, and Stalin hasn't yet come to power. He, he's making his way there, but um, <laughs> easing his way up, but he takes over the reins really in 1928, and things change dramatically, because then he starts to repress, first of all, religious is completely repressed in 1927, 28, and then the intellectual circles like Voskresenia are closed. He's trying to suppress individual uh, intellectual thought, if you like. And then, of course, you get the purges, and the purges are just shaking people up. So you can purge the academicians, so the academies, whether they were of sciences or arts, were getting shaken. And they arrested people for no particular reason, really, and they would think up a trumped-up charge. Similarly, they would have campaigns against the scientists, uh, geneticists, and you know, they did it in great deal of damage, actually, to the sciences in the Soviet Union, and arrested some wonderful people. And of course, you then get people who are charlatans taking over. So it wasn't a very good thing. The same was happening in the universities. A lot of people had to leave. I already mentioned the philosophy steamers. People had to leave. But some people managed to stay and managed to keep, keep going. And As Maria did. Well, as Maria did, but I'm thinking more in the universities where, you, you know, with music has the advantage of not having words, so it's not so specific in what it means. Mm. But in the universities, many of the professors were not able to go on teaching in the way they wanted to. And ideology became very important. The idea of creating what they called rabfak, the, the workers' faculties. They wanted to know where you came from. Did you have a working class background, proletarian background, or did you have an aristocratic background? If you had any relatives who were aristocrats, I think it wasn't very good. You had much less opportunity and you had to be careful. You had to sort of 
hide your origins as best you could. And some people managed to survive. Not everybody. Some people, of course, left because they knew that that was the best thing to do, probably, to they would have no opportunities in the Soviet Union. Well, I think, sadly, we're coming to the end of our time, so we're going to have to leave Maria in 1921 with all of this ahead of her. And um, she does go on to lead quite a full life and stays in, stays, in, stays in the Soviet Union, continues to teach and continues to play. So we, we shouldn't worry about her too much, even though there are these horrible things coming up. But before we head back to the present day, back to the Yale University Press offices, um, you are allowed to take Memento from this period back with you. Uh-oh. What memento would you like to take? Well, I have a, happen to have a memento. I have it actually at home because it's something my mother bought. And I'm talking about a chess set that was, I think, created originally in 1922 rather than 1921. I'm sorry about that, but it was about the Civil War. And this chess set represents two sides. The one side is the black figures, and they're made of beautiful carved ceramic um, porcelain figures. The black side are the Tsar, so the king is skeleton with a crown on his head. The queen is likewise a skeletal figure. Um, you know, you could see the bishops of corrupt church people. The pawns are slaves, they've got chains around them. And you think of, you know, what is it? Proletarians of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. These are all chained up. The white is not white, it's red, because it's a red army, it's a red, who won the Civil War, if you like. And so the pawns are holding sheaves of wheat and looking terribly happy, and the bishop is probably a commissar, and the king and queen are, you know, the one is a worker and the other is in a peasant, but they're, you know, it's their world. And this is quite a famous uh, chess set. There's a copy of it in the Russian Museum, and several copies were made um, at the time. Now, my mother was doing something very interesting in going ahead in time, 1937. She went to Russia. 1937 was a year most people don't like to remember because it was the year of the Great Purges. But she was working for something called uh, a mission for distressed British subjects. And there was a lady called Lady Muriel Padgett, who was a philanthropist and who had set up this mission basically for the people who were left in Russia who were... British people who were mostly governesses. And when the revolution happened there, employers had all fled or emigrated or been shot or whatever, and they were left on their own and they probably had nobody back home any longer. And they were eking out their days in miserable conditions in communal flats in, in this case, Leningrad. And Lady Muriel would go around and take them biscuits or tea or something to try and look after them, make sure they were all right and in touch with the, with the, with the British consulate. And when they died, she would go there and make sure that the other inhabitants of the common flat didn't pounce on all their possessions. And you know, it was quite an interesting, but quite upsetting. My mother found it quite upsetting going, going round to these people. Um, Lady Muriel herself was quite a figure, and she was, uh, uh, on the side, she would bring in a Rolls Royce from Helsinki to sell, you know, just make a bit of extra money. And I said, but how could she possibly sell a Rolls Royce in Soviet Russia in 1937? (laughs) Apparently you could. There were commissars who wanted to buy them and would bargain for them as that. Anyway, my mother, 
was engaged to my father at that age, and she went to a commission shop which sold second-hand articles, and she saw this chess set, and she was intrigued by it, and she said, oh, I do want to buy that. And they said, well, it costs however many much it was, 10,000 rubles or something, I don't know what it was. And she said, um, well, I haven't got the money on it. Can I come back and get it tomorrow? And they said, yes, that's fine. And she was so happy, she went back and she told Lady Muriel she'd seen this. And she went back the next day, my mother, with the interpreter. And they went to the commission shop and they said, oh, we're awfully sorry, it's been sold. Lydia, the interpreter, said, well, who to? And they said, well, an another English lady came. <laughs> so Lady Muriel herself had come. And Lydia, the interpreter, was so angry that somebody could do this to my mother that she said, all right, Betty, I'm going to fix it for you. And she rang up the factory, the Lomonosov factory, it was called, which was a name they'd given to the famous state imperial porcelain factory where Fabergé had made all his eggs and other mm. things. And she got my mother into the factory, which was basically completely not allowed, foreigners weren't allowed. And she met the porcelain ceramic artist called Natalia Danko, and, and the director of the factory, and they said, what can we do for you? My mother said, oh, I so wanted to have one of those chess fits. Oh, no problem, we'll make one for you. And what would you like for it? And so she had learnt, been reading Yevgeny Onegin by Pushkin, and she said, knew the word for the, the, um, the seal, Benzil. And she said, I'd like you to have that. I'd like to have my husband's and my date of engagement put on. Wow. on the, so each figure has the date of their engagement. Wow. And that made it particularly, particularly special. It's a unique chess set. And my mother said, I love it because I think Danko had a lot of sympathy for the, for the, for the black pieces, the Saris pieces. Their faces are so delicate and suffering. Other kind of, the workers are a little bit more placid and, you know. So, so that, that's my, my particular object because I associated not with 1937, but with the earlier period, because mm. it represents that. That Civil War. Mm -hmm. Well, what an extraordinary story. And did you say you have it at home? Yes. So I think you're the first guest on Travels Through Time to actually have the memento they wanted to, that they want to bring back. So that's quite exciting. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking to me about this fascinating book and this extraordinary woman, Maria Udina. I feel like it's been a whistle-stop tour of so many aspects of Russian history, so I really appreciate you being our guide on it. So well, thank, thank you. you, and I've, I've loved being here and loved talking about it. Thank you very much. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Elizabeth Wilson about the year 1921 and her new book, Playing With Fire, which is published by Yale University Press and is available to buy now. As ever, please do head over to our website for more information about this episode and any of our others. And until next week, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.